You're listening to Around the King's Table, a podcast of the Mount Church in Clemson, South Carolina, with Pastor George Marshall and Pastor Brian Mann. Pull up a chair and listen in as they seek to serve up biblical dialogue for building disciples of Jesus. All right, so we're going to get going. Uh, I'll go ahead and introduce our guys right ahead and let them introduce themselves. So I think everybody in here knows me. I'm Brian Mann, I'm one of the pastors at the Mount Church here in Clemson, South Carolina. Beside me. Sorry, I didn't know. I thought he was going to introduce me. No, I was just going to talk. Okay, thanks. Hey, I'm David Lyles. <laughs> I'm, I have a cold, so forgive me. Um, but I am the pastor, lead pastor at Connection Fellowship Church in Powdersville, South Carolina. I've been there 11 years in November and been very close friends to Brian since we were teenagers. 13, 13 years old. Yeah, we got saved about the same time and uh, been buddies since. A mini revival Amen. at our high school yeah. in 1997. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. I'm Jeremy Merck. I'm the pastor at First Baptist Church of Norris, just right down the road. Amen. And I count it an honor to be here tonight. Mm-hmm. Thanks, brother. And I'm George. I'm one of the pastors here at the Mount. My <coughs> husband to Kim and father to Sean. So you want to show us up? What? Husband. Or not your wife there. I also have a husband. To Jeremy. I see how this is going to go. Yeah. Sorry. I'm a husband. <laughs> Jerry, are you a husband as well? I am. Okay, great. Someone who's not a husband yet is Jonathan Fox. Wow. So, uh, but it's coming, brother, don't worry. Um, so, Jonathan Fox, along with Jerry Weaver, uh, two of our current presidents. <laughs> and, uh, and Fox Fox is going to be uh, MC for us, and uh, he's going to be asking all the questions uh, this evening. So. I'm going to pass it over to him uh, to pray for us, and then he's going to read a passage to us from Matthew 28, the Great Commission passage, and then he'll start asking us questions, and we will try our best to answer them from the Bible, and we'll try to do it uh, quickly and succinctly enough uh, to give a little bit of time uh, so that if you have any questions as you're listening to us and hear what we have to say, if you have any questions uh, that are generated for yourself, and you want to ask those to us, we're going to try to leave a little bit of space uh, for you to be able to do that, and, um, and then we'll try our best to, to answer them on the fly for you, okay? So, I'm now going to pass it along to Fox on the Box. Absolutely. All right, thank you. Well, first, I want to just open us just with some prayer, um, just get our hearts and minds in the right place. Um, so, if you'll join in prayer with me. Uh, Lord, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for everyone's willingness to um, just come out and learn more about you and the commission you've given us. I thank you for all of our panelists and the sacrifice of time that they have made. Um, and I pray that you would just meet us here, Lord, and help us learn more of you, um, learn more of your heart. And I pray that this time is beneficial for all of us. Um, in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Right, so, to start us off, I'm going to read from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Um, this is commonly known as the Great Commission. Um, so, if you just want to follow along on the screen there. Um, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, as we've said, this is commonly known as the Great Commission, so our first question, or set of questions, is what is the Great Commission, and why is it the Great Commission? Or in other words, do we or can we have other commissions as Christians, and how do they relate to the Great Commission? Not everybody at once. Go, George. Go, George. Okay, so what is the Great Commission? Um, I'd say, just kind of succinctly, it is setting up Christ is the king. He's the mediatorial king in this age. So as we are engaged as the church, Christ is king, and he's king from the point of, you know, he's been given authority to his return. He comes back, and the Great Commission covers that whole entire scope. He has authority and will be with us all the way to the end of the age. And then it, of course, is going to, as we're going to detail out, we have now a mission assigned. Um, but really, it's, that's just the tip of the iceberg because God has already identified himself as a missionary God. And that this just kind of taps into that mission. So. <clears throat> yes, absolutely, George. Um, and if you want to talk about the specific of the mission, um, at least three of the Gospels and the, and the longer version of Mark as well. They all say it a little bit differently, and Acts does as well. So the Matthew 28 passage, go therefore and make disciples. If you're looking at, uh, let's say, the Luke passage, it says it a little bit differently, um, but there's a lot of overlap. It says and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in, the, in his name, that's Jesus' name, to all nations. So you see a bunch of repetition, and then John 20. 11 through 23 it talks about as the father is sending me jesus uh jesus says so i am sending you in acts 1 8 uh go therefore and and uh you know acts 1 8 um you will be my witnesses so very similar uh, the crux of matthew 28 as i understand it that is helpful is in the original language in the greek um there's not many uh, verbs there's one main verb and that main verb is make disciples. So uh, the other surrounding, uh, seemingly they seem like verbs in the English when we read it, but they're more so like participles. So the main verb is make disciples and like going, baptizing, teaching. Um, those are all supporting the, the overall thrust as I've studied and seen. So I think the main mission aspect after Jesus is king is go make disciples of Jesus and what does that look like well it looks like going and I think evangelism is implied there um, and then obviously baptizing and then obviously teaching um, mm. everything that Jesus has said to obey it so you have anything to add to that brother I, I think Dave I think David nailed it <clears throat> um, that that idea of as you are going make disciples um, and, and I'm sure 
what I'm thinking is going to be fleshed out later, so I'll, I'll hold on to Great. Yeah. I would actually push more because of the way he uses those participles. The, the idea is there is there is actually implied in how participles work with imperatives that there actually is imperatival. And they would just, they naturally, when they pair multiple imperatives, this multiple imperative? commands. There you go. So you do have that one command that's in a you know, non-participle, but they tend to actually use that and intend a part of a, a, a actual command, an actual imperative. And so I would take it rather than as a, an as you go, as nice as that might be, and there's reason to you know think in that way, I think it actually is intended to say go. Mm-hmm. It is intended with a imperative, a command kind of force, um, go, make disciples, teach them. Um, and not just as a, you know, not just as you do something or, or concessive. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing that I'm really add to to all of that is, are you laughing at George? No, we want to know what a participle is. A participle yeah, is a nice. verbal adjective, is probably the best way of thinking of it. A verbal so, adjective. So it's a verb in an adjective form. So if we say the running man, running there is an adjective, it modifies man. If you said the running one, running is a adjective. It's acting as an adjective, but it's obviously a verbal idea. And so while we do this a little bit in English, Greek uses it way more thoroughgoing throughout the, the vocabulary and grammar. Um, so they are very, Greek is a very participle, heavy language, but that's ultimately it. It's a verbal adjective. So you can turn that into, so you easy running, so you have a, a, a running man or a going church. Um, you can also do things like, as he went, is all of a sudden also a participle. It's the, if you kind of think of it, this, this ing idea where you're being descriptive, sometimes it's modifying a noun, sometimes it's acting just as a adverb, as a modifier on the verb, indicating time indicating an action that happened at the same time or nearby. And for that, we're done with the grammar. <laughs> so to, to bring it down a little bit, so our call is to make disciples. So we should start by asking, what is a disciple? So that's a great question. I'm going to go back to the participles. So the question is, what is a disciple? That's what we're called to do. So let's make them. And uh, a simplistic way of describing that is a disciple is a follower. Um, one person said um, a follower doesn't just follow their, a follower doesn't just know what their master knows, they do what their master does. Okay. And so that's kind of the idea in the Bible. Um, Jesus says, if you bear much fruit, you will prove that you're my disciple. So it's an individual who's bearing the fruit of Christ. Other places it says, and they will know my, that you're my disciples by your what? Love. love for one another. So it's not just the worldly love, it's the love of Christ in an individual. So a disciple is not one who just knows, but one who follows the King, Jesus. And we know we can't do that with, apart from the Spirit. So the goal is important. So that's where we start. That's why I was. Uh, Focusing on what the main verb is. So we got to know what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be making disciples. And so part of that are people who know what Jesus knows, but also who obey what Jesus says. And so those participles then make sense. So they come along and said, 
you can't say that you're a disciple if you're not going. You can't say that you're a disciple if you're not intense, intentionally seeking after other people becoming disciples or followers of Jesus, which they can't unless they have the gospel shared with them. The gospel is something that actually is a proclamation. There is a content to it. Um, and those people who are not savingly believing that, and then after that point being baptized and then trained up uh, to understand what Jesus said and then obey it. And so they repeat the process. So a disciple maker is one who is bringing others uh, to Jesus and then Jesus is saving them. And then they in turn are going out to repeat the process or multiply. So the participles again, they help kind of explain to you the, the kind of steps is not the maybe the best way to say it, but the steps going moving towards that goal um, so that every person can then repeat that goal. If that makes this makes sense. So yes, I think that's great. Yeah. And to move, to move along, the only thing that I would add to all of that is to say the, the wider context of the Bible. So uh, really what Matthew is doing there in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, what Jesus is doing, which is recording Jesus as doing, is he's picking up some threads from really the beginning of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So Genesis 1, 2, 3, you have the creation uh, of the world, you have the creation of human beings, you have uh, sin coming into the world, you have people that separated from God because of their sin. Then eventually, <clears throat> you have this gospel promise. Uh, God is going to uh, raise up this capital O offspring through the woman, right? Well, that gets handed down to a guy named Abraham, who we're learning a lot about in our church right now, uh, in Genesis chapter 12. And at the end of Genesis 12, I believe it's verse 3, he says, In you, in Abraham, and ultimately in Abraham's offspring, in you, the nations are going to be blessed. Right? Well, that comes to a head in Christ. Right. So Christ is that great offspring, Mm -hmm. and when Matthew begins his gospel, he actually talks of Jesus in terms of being this great offspring of Abraham. And then the gospel actually closes with, okay, so this offspring has come, he's done his saving work, and now he has all authority on heaven and earth, Mm -hmm. and his commission is go to the nations and bless them. Yes. Bless them with the truth of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so... That's the I'm just setting that wider frame for us as well, that it is really the culmination of the entire Bible's uh, progress towards uh, redemption and the story of redemption. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you all. Um, moving along to our next question that ties into this, uh, which is, so we have this Great Commission. To whom was the Great Commission given? And for whom was it, is the Great Commission today? So is it the original disciples? Is it just pastors or professional ministers and missionaries? Or is it all Christians? Christians as individuals, Christians as part of a local church. So who does this great commission apply to? You guys said you had things to say about that. You did. You me first. <laughs> you, flip a coin. you go ahead if you want to. Um, so yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the question is, uh, to whom was the Great Commission given? And I think technically you would have to say uh, the 11 disciples, like if you're looking um, at where you were in progressive redemption. Um, but one thing I, I noticed as I was reading back over some text, familiar text that was really encouraging to me, is my understanding, like let's say using Acts 1.8, um, and we've already alluded to that already, but I'll read it again just in case. 
you're not familiar with it, <clears throat> Jesus speaking after his resurrection and he talks about, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So those were the disciples there. And he's saying, hey, you don't need to know uh, when I'm coming back, but you've got a mission. You've got a great commission. And when you're going to wait until what? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's going to happen soon, shortly from now. And it's interesting um, the way that's connected, because if you keep on reading, it says the early church, the gathered church was there at Pentecost. And there was about 120 of them. And the text makes it very explicit who is actually in the 120. It's men, it's women, it's not just uh, the professionals of the church, it's not just the leaders, it's not just uh, the elders of the church, it's a whole swath of people, probably kind of look like this room, except 120. But we got 20, at least, right? We said men, yeah. And uh, as they're praying, as they're praying, they're believing God's promise to pour out the spirit that's needed to do this great commission. And it's as they're praying that they receive the fulfillment of what Jesus says. So I think that's really important to think on because if you said technically the great commission is just for the early disciples, it ended then, you know, and then we're not supposed to be a part of that. Or you even said it's just for leaders or the professionals or the clergy or the elders or the deacons. I think you would be misreading that text because clearly Jesus gives them the commission, promises them that they're going to not be able to do it until the spirit comes. They're waiting in prayerful hope and reliance. And then that promise to be witnesses, to be enabled to be witnesses. It comes on the gathered church. It comes on the gathered church. It doesn't just, the spirit does not just fall on the elders or the, the first disciples and apostles and teachers. The spirit falls on the gathered church. And when the gathered church is full of the Holy Spirit, the text says very clearly, they begin to Proclaim the works of God. David's preaching. And the works of God in that context, very clearly on the hills of what had just happened, what's the greatest work that God's ever done? He raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the dead by his spirit and proclaimed him to be Lord over heaven and earth and, and death itself. That's the great works of God the resurrected Lord and they're like proclaiming the works of God and they're enabled to understand it um, supernaturally in their own tongue. So I would just say, if you say that the great commission is only for the first disciples and apostles, I think you misread the broader context. And of course the intent of the entire Bible, because from early in the scriptures, like Brian already referenced, the goal is not come and see, but it's go and tell. So when Jesus transforms the individual's life from whatever particular nation, they're to go and take the gospel message. And so that filters all the way down to where we are. And that's why, well, I won't get into later questions, but um, sorry. Yeah. That's all good. you anything else to add to that? Well, I, I did. Um, I, I agree with, with everything that, that David said. Um, but just because the fact and you're reading 
in some commentaries and different Bible uh, scholars, there's there's another take on it being that it could be more. I know the Bible says in the context, the 11, um, there's a possibility that when Jesus is given the Great Commission there, when Paul is speaking in 1 Corinthians 15 of witnesses of the resurrection, he includes a group of 500 that saw him at one time after the resurrection. And um, I think John MacArthur lines up here and some other Bible scholars say that not only are the 11 here, but it could be other witnesses there in Galilee um, that, that saw Jesus as he gave the Great Commission. Um, and another idea within the text that says that some doubted. Um, and I, I don't think the 11 would have doubted at that time. Um, but everything else that David said, I, I, I agree um, about the Great Commission is to everybody that is in the local church that's born yeah. again. Yeah, it's really interesting too because in the greater context of, of Matthew, if you go to Matthew 16, that's where you get Peter, for example. He becomes one of the apostles. And uh, Peter gives this great confession of Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. <clears throat> and then he says, he's given Peter authority to, to bind and loose. And he has these keys of the kingdom of heaven. But what's interesting is though that's isolated to Peter in Matthew 16, is that when you come to Matthew 18, on your way to Matthew 28, the binding and loosing and the keys of the kingdom are not just isolated to one guy, Peter. Yeah. It actually is given to the church. Yeah. This, Peter is just a representative of the church at large. <clears throat> and so when you get to Matthew 28, uh, even though, even if it is given to 11 right. guys um, or whoever, uh, you know already from the context of Matthew and again what you see in the book of Acts, uh, that it is clearly intended for everyone who comes to faith yep. in Amen. Jesus Christ. We're to be making disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, and that's for all of us. And, you know, one of the things that we, we like to emphasize uh, at our church, too, is, is just Ephesians 4.12. You know, a lot of times we, we do kind of isolate the Great Commission to professional clergy. Right. Or to missionaries or something like that. But we want to be very clear then about uh, pastors and their responsibility, mainly, uh, or at least one of them, uh, Ephesians 4.12, is that we would equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, that's in relationship to, to the local church, uh, but it's also in relationship to going out as a local church and advancing the gospel Amen. in our broader communities. Amen. Amen. Awesome. All right. Thank you all. Um, so with these things in mind, as we've talked about, what does the local church have to do with the Great Commission? In other words, can and should it be advanced in isolation from the local church? It's a great question. It's a hard question. And with all my hard questions, I pass it to George. <laughs> That's fair. Right, so, <laughs> uh. Now, I mean, there, there are two main um, things that have competed to pull these two things apart historically. The first was um, the Catholic Church um, basically presented a system where, ecclesi where ecclesiology, the church, kind of ran a roughshod over soteriology, over top of salvation, to where the church is dispensing salvation, and you can only have that salvation in the church. This is sort of a far pole that said, we as the church, we're over scripture. We define what scripture is. We're over top of salvation. We define what salvation, and we actually give it to you through the sacraments. Um, and so all of a sudden you have this, the church is 
bigger than the Great Commission. It's this seated thing that's really, really high. As the Protestant Reformation comes, you see this shift to an individualistic soteriology, something where you have salvation is what's all important, and all of a sudden you have the church sort of drifting apart. And these are two opposite poles, either this individualistic um, salvation or this we are the church, we tell you what salvation is, mm -hmm. and to keep them together, you have to tie local church with the Great Commission. Basically, the spread of the gospel is tied to what the local church is. Neither one gets to take the precedence. Yeah. I'd say that's, for me, ultimately what, what ties them together, is they're, they're the healthy path forward. Either, kind of running either side, you end up landing in a ditch that we've seen historically in the church. I, I think part of the tie-in is I, I was, it's hard to follow George. I mean, um, that, that was very clear, George. That was very clear. The thought that just has been popping in my head as I've been looking over this the last couple of days um, is First Timothy chapter 3. And I'm not going to read the text, but when uh, Paul refers, you know, I write these things to you. Um, so you'll know how to behave in the household of God. And, and the reason is that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. Yeah. And, and that's how it ties in in the local church, yeah. in the Great Commission, because we are carrying forth the truth um, to a lost world of, of who Jesus is and how they can be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. That's right. And um, it, we are the pillar and the buttress of truth. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I lost my place in my notes, so I was trying to find what I specifically wrote on that. But um, I think nothing, nothing new to be added. Um, but I, I think I said something like, "Can you uh, tell me the exact question again? What number we were on?" Yeah, we're on the third one. What does the local church have to do with the Great Commission? Yeah, I. I think it's already been said, and I don't want to repeat, but I said the church is to be like the shaft or handle on the spear. <laughs> and all I meant by that is what has already been said is that the church is the equippers or the senders. Um, and I best based that on Acts 1-8, um, first of all, that the, like I said already, that the spirit of God fell on the local church, the 120 gathered in Jerusalem in the upper room. Yeah. But I also wanted to kind of look at the, the model that we see in the, the book of Acts. Um, yeah, so right. just Acts 13, as we think about that, Acts 13, one through two, um, basically you have the church, if I remember correctly, at Antioch and they are gathered in, if I remember correctly, they're worshiping the Lord together. And there's a few there. I think Paul is there and maybe another uh, specific, maybe it was Barnabas um, at that time. And it says, as they had gathered for worship um, and they were praying and, and maybe that they were fasting, that the spirit of God set them apart for the mission. And so it's very interesting. Where did that happen? That actually happened in the church at Antioch as they were gathered and they were worshiping the Lord together. And I think that's really something that we should note. It's not the only way that it could happen, but that's God's chosen way. And, the, and the, the pattern we really see in the New Testament as the gospel is going forward. 
So it's starting out of a local church. And then what happens is, if you follow that, the local church lays hands on them, if I remember correctly, and, and sends them out um, and says, we are behind this mission. And you're going to go and you're going to take the gospel to all these different places. And then you're going to actually come back and you're going to tell us what happened. So we can be a part of it. Like we can be a part of the sending process, the praying process. Yeah. Later on in, in uh, Acts, they're part of the giving process. But that's all starting out of the local church and it's moving outward and then it's coming back and then it's moving outward and then it's coming back and it's like a cyclical thing. Like think of the ocean waves coming in and going back out. So I think that's very crucial because of this point. What those churches are doing are, as a local church is they are actually sending out biblically qualified men in the context. What do I mean by that? Right. They're qualified in doctrine and in character. And so they have their covering, so to speak, over these people saying, hey, they're with us. They're teaching the gospel. And we believe that they are qualified uh, by character to go out. We're sending them. We're behind this message. And, and I think that's crucial because when those guys take the gospel forward, people are getting saved in pockets. Like think of them getting saved in like the marketplace or they're getting saved at your workplace. And then a bunch of Christians in a new area where there's no church, they're really, really far away from their sending church, the local local church there. They're saying, what do we do? And they don't say, hey, let's just, you know, wing it. Okay, let's win it. And I'll be the leader. You know, I, I don't know anything about Jesus. I just got saved. I know the gospel, but I'll, I'll lead the church. No, it doesn't happen like that. The people who went out from the local church as emissaries, they're saying, hey, you know what? We're going to raise up qualified. We're going to stay here until we get qualified men in character and doctrine. And then we're going to install more elders. And then we're going to leave. And you're going to have a local church and then you're going to do this gospel thing and make disciples and it's going to create new believers. You're going to plant churches. And you're going to plant. Yeah. 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 So um, I think that's just how the model you have and the pattern you have in the New Testament. So I think probably we should get behind that. And that's that's a joke. Um, (laughs) We should get behind that. And if we're doing something different, we should probably say, we shouldn't say, hey, is God using that? Like we're doing it differently. Like we don't believe the church, the local church is the shaft on the end of the spear. We're doing something different. Like we've got a flip flop and we believe something else is the shaft on the end of the spear. We shouldn't say, does it work? Is it producing the things that we want? I think we should more say what would be more biblically accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the question. It's not like, are people not getting saved another way? Um, are people because they are and God will do that and he does you've heard wild stories that are amazing but we should say well let's try to be as biblically faithful because God's at work doing something you know right like he's wiser than us so why in the world did he arrange it like that because he's wiser and what he doesn't want are people floating around in pockets out there and they have no biblically qualified leadership and and godly leaders leading over them so well and it's exactly that, I mean, yeah. that that wisdom. I mean, that is exactly Paul's point. Ephesians two, Ephesians three, is it's God's wisdom to bring together this body of Jew and Gentile into one body that can demonstrate His love and kindness and abundant grace. Amen. And so we try to do it apart from the local church. We we get the gospel wrong, 
we get his whole purpose in creating the church wrong. And so, yeah, they're, they're linked through that. And that's not only do we see that, you know, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, but then historically we see that what the people around the church saw, why people were coming to the faith, why the church grew, was they saw the people's love inside Amen. the church. They saw what the church was meant to be, and that was what was markedly different from mm. the world. That was what was different from Roman society. That's what they went to. Um, seeing Christ change people inside that context. It wasn't just, oh, I see you, you have a good argument. It was, I see the church. Yes. I see the church it's living good. out the gospel. Yeah. The, only, the only thing that I would add, I actually got to start a little bit earlier in the book of Acts and just say, it's really important when we're trying to understand the Great Commission's relationship to the local church. It's really important that we ask ourselves, how did the early church understand the Great Commission? How did they see it playing out? And you see it immediately. At Pentecost, right. Yeah. In fact, you have a lot of the things that you're going to find in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. You have all this authority. I have all this authority on heaven and earth. Okay, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, you get to Acts chapter two. Peter preaches his Pentecostal sermon. Three thousand souls are cut to the heart. And what does Peter say? They go, "What shall we do? We've been cut to the heart." Peter says. Repent and be, what's the word? Baptized. Baptized. Where's he getting that from? Yeah. He's getting that from Jesus in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission. Okay? So everyone then who received the word, it says later on in Acts 2, 41 or 2, something like that, uh, it says everyone who received the word was baptized, baptized. and added. added to the number. Added to the number. So, so right off the bat, the early church understood the fulfilling of the Great Commission to be about the church, right. the local church. Baptism added to the number, and then the next, the, the, the last little paragraph of Acts chapter 2 is, they're all getting together, gathering together, and what are they doing? They're devoting themselves to prayer and to the apostles, teaching, teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So you're seeing the Great Commission fulfilled in the context of the early church right after Pentecost. That's how they understood the, the Great Commission to be going forward primarily. That is the pattern right. of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Very good. Um, moving along with that, our next question is, how will a biblical understanding of salvation inform the way we steward the Great Commission? Hmm. Uh, is there a best way to think about missions, methodology, philosophy, and measuring progress? Yes. Yeah. Next question. So. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, that's hilarious. Don't go for it. Yeah, Jeremy or whoever. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I'll start out by saying I see that hand. Um, that there's not really a hand out there. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> like, what? what, what? It, it, if, like, you're, if you're from the from the more. <laughs> The, the more traditional um, background like I am, yeah. I, I think, first of all, you have to know what fulfilling the Great Commission is and that it's not going out to make converts. It's to make disciples. Mm. Um, mm. You know, we've already kind of hashed out the mission of the church. My job as a pastor and these other guys, really, it funnels out to... We are to make disciples that make disciples. And when you're making disciples, you're in turn making disciples who are going out to make 
disciples and that New Testament idea of salvation, when Jesus says, if you will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is salvation. It is wholehearted surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. And then um, through the local church, that one who's been converted is to grow up in the faith through the teaching of the word, the word of the Holy Spirit through uh, the teaching of the word. And so um, I think at times we as churches have failed because we think we're fulfilling the Great Commission just by going out and doing some mission work. And so we've had 15 souls that were saved and then we leave it there. And, and, and with that is an improper view of salvation. Um, so, so very key is that um, we have to get back to the basis. What is biblical salvation? You know, mm-hmm. and, and then the way we steward the Great Commission is that we seek to make disciples that in turn make disciples. Um, you know, that which is birthed is going to birth yeah. again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with what Jeremy said. Um, <clears throat> a biblical understanding of salvation, I, I thought several different things, Jeremy. I thought a lot of people don't know what the gospel is That's right. in, in South Carolina. Um, I, I say not this not to boast of myself, but especially when I first got here in South Carolina back from seminary and I was at my first church or my second church in uh, Powdersville where I am right now, <clears throat> I was sharing the gospel a lot in that area. And uh, there are there are tons of churches over there and I'm sure like it is over in, in this area. And I remember after a couple of years um, of sharing the gospel, I was like, I've heard like two people articulate the gospel clearly out of a ton of people. So I just thought uh, understanding a biblical biblical understanding of salvation, like we need to know what the gospel is. And I don't think people do. You know, I was doing a membership interview at my church not too long ago and, and the person had been in church their whole life and they could not articulate the gospel for me. So um, not taking away from what Jeremy was saying, I think that's the byproduct of you know following Jesus, and I, I get that. But I'm saying like First Corinthians 15, understanding the gospel, like Christ died according to the scriptures and raised according to the scriptures for our sins. Like that's the gospel in a nutshell. First Corinthians 15. Okay, so we need to understand that, um, and we also need to understand that there is a biblical way to respond to that. Yeah. And there, and it's, it's the saving way. And one author, I know this is a little cheeky, but it was really funny when I first read it. One author wrote this book and he said, uh, the title of the book was Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. <laughs> Sorry. And, uh, you know, front, it could be offensive. Thank you. You know, thank you, brother. I've got that cold cotton mouth. Um, but that was very helpful to me because in, in South Carolina, growing up in South Carolina, um, 
you know, that's all that I was told. Like, here's the gospel, and how do you respond? Well, you just ask Jesus in your heart. And I think that's, to Jeremy's point, I think that's missing the biblical response. Mark 1, 15, Jesus is preaching the kingdom, and what does he say? What does he say after he preaches the kingdom? What's the response he calls for? Does anybody know? Mark 1, 15. He says, repent and believe the gospel. So the gospel is 1 Corinthians 15. In a nutshell, I told you Christ died raised for your sins, to pay for your sins. And then their biblical response is repent and believe the gospel. It's not ask Jesus in your heart. Now, if you know what you meant by asking Jesus in your heart, that could be a saving response. Um, And then hopefully I'm not confusing anything. I'm just saying there's some really important things we have to understand a biblical view of salvation. The, The last thing I will add to that is Uh, wording, wording, wording. Sorry. I'm looking for the exact wording. Uh, what number was it, Jonathan? I'm so sorry. No, for how will biblical understanding of salvation inform the way we steward the Great Commission? Yeah, and so, and then the last piece to Jeremy's point, John, John 3 says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So you've got this amazing gospel. And then you've got this biblical response and repentance and faith. And then John 3 says, unless a man be born again, he cannot be saved. And it says, you can't cause yourself to be born. You had nothing to do with it. John 3 says that the sovereign spirit of God blew like the wind into your soul. Like to use the second Corinthians text, I believe. Like the text says, you were blinded by the devil and you could not behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ until this is what happened at salvation. Listen, this is what happened at conversion. Every single person in this room who has been saved is born again follower of Jesus. What happened at your conversion was God Almighty spoke into the darkness of your heart where there was only darkness. And he said, light. And he gave you the understanding that Jesus Christ is God and King and Savior and that he was your only hope. And if you understand that, it changes everything because you're not looking for numbers anymore. You're like, people have to be born again and that's a work of God. Yeah, yeah. So how many people you have in the church just hearing your instructions, even maybe following your instructions, it really doesn't matter if their heart has not been changed. Amen. If they're not united with Christ. Yes. That's ultimately salvation. We talked about it when we dealt with atonement at the court of discipleship. And we've been dealing with it in Galatians. We've been dealing with it in Ephesians. But ultimately, it all stems around this union with Christ, which once again ties us vertically to God. It ties us horizontally to the local church because we're all connected to one another through that union we have with Christ. And so if we don't understand that and how that's related to salvation, yeah, we're, we're, we're not really authentic disciples at that point. We're yeah. not accomplishing the Great Commission. Yeah. But I'd say, to piggyback off of that, if we're understanding the, the Great Commission to be um, intimately connected with the local church and the, the ministry of the local church, it's imperative that, that we, we labor for the local church to be healthy. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think that's, that's critical. Yeah which involves us 
in things like ensuring a regenerate church membership. Yep. Absolutely. It involves us. These things you may not find the you know chapter and verse for them in the Bible, uh, but they're prudential steps that you would take to discern the credibility of one's faith. Mm-hmm. I think that's critical for a church actually being a church, a healthy church, a growing church, the kind of church that makes disciples yes. the way that the Bible talks about making disciples. Mm-hmm. Visible local church being the, yeah. those who are actually united with Christ and not just those right. who are hangers on. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Onward. Amen. Right, thank you all. Um, next. We have what all is or may be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission, uh, including at the local church level or even at the local church member level. So what does it mean to actually be fulfilling the Great Commission? Yeah, corporate, personal. Yeah. And showing up even more as the day approaches, I mean, being actively engaged as a disciple. Um, confirming your election. I mean, they're doing those things that will show forth that, yeah, the fruit is real. It's not just a show. It's not just put on. I can have confidence because I can see how Christ has actually changed me. It's on the personal side. I think those are some pretty powerful things. But I I mean, having a right view and and working to have a a good practice of this, called sacraments, but of those practices that um, Jesus commanded baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, I think, are essential. And while the Great Commission may only point out one of them, baptism, I think because of the way 16, 18, 28 kind of flow together, he includes the Lord's Supper as he does it. Um, and so I think the right practice of those and the right teaching of those is important for fulfilling the Great Commission. Mm. Yeah, I'd say part of showing up, like you said, George, is like I've listened to this brother share the gospel and preach the gospel over the years. I just listened to a sermon out of Jonah that he preached the other day and just coming to be reminded of the gospel. You know, how if you don't get that on a, on a regular basis, um, it might be because you're not coming to church because believers need the gospel. Yeah. Part of the reason why we need it is because we need to be reminded of where we were before Jesus came into our lives. Mm-hmm. And then as a result, we understand, again, the content of the gospel. And then we have a new uh, joy to go out and share with those that don't know him. So part of that showing up is hearing the message, but also being equipped like this time. Right. You're showing up for this time um, and you're being equipped to take that message forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's right. Actually, speaking the gospel to people who don't know it, right? Uh, I think is part of the Great Commission, and that may look different. I mean, that may not mean cross-cultural missions. It may not mean going to Africa. It may be actually talking to the person in the checkout line and actually just saying, "How are you doing?" You know, mm-hmm. instead of just like, "Here's my card, take it and go." I mean, it, it means taking those practical steps. It means praying. It may. I mean, it, it's all the things that it takes in order so that we might have an opportunity to share what Christ has done right. in our lives. It's a very strange thing that we do, it seems, where we actually somewhat separate the Great Commission from the local church. The Great Commission is what missionaries, they, they go overseas, they do it. Right. And, but we don't do that as, as a church. So one of the things that 
I think we have to focus on biblically. Again, how did the early church, right at the beginning, like they, you have these now 3,118. Okay, so that's a pretty big church, I would say. Um, did they all just kind of shoot off and start individually sharing the gospel all over Jerusalem? I mean, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But what you see first is that they begin to gather together. Right. Yeah. They begin to gather together. And they devote themselves to prayer. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to hospitality. They devote themselves to these, these corporate uh, aspects of Christianity, local church. And it says that as they were doing this, souls were added to their number day by day. Well, that's crazy because you, what you're thinking is, you're going to hear, and all 3,118 of them went out and started sharing the gospel with everyone all over Jerusalem, and many souls were added. Souls were being added to the number day by day by day. That's not what it says. It says the Christians were gathering together as a church and devoting themselves to prayer and teaching and hospitality, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, again... The, the gathering of the church is itself, I think this is something so critical for us to understand. Missions is not just us going out there. David mentioned earlier, it's you know go and tell kind of thing. That's true. But there's also this, there is an element in the New Testament of a come and see. It is still a come and see, a, a gather, an assembly. You come and you hear the gospel. I mean, one of the things that we try to do in our church is just saturate, I know these brothers do too, but we try to saturate our gatherings in the gospel. I don't know, I'm sure you pick up on that. Okay? We want you guys to hear gospel after gospel, more gospel, more gospel, more gospel. Okay? The truth of the scriptures. And as you're doing that, you're, you're being edified. You're learning the gospel yourself. You're getting a, a passion for Christ that should then overflow as you go out from the assembly into the world for the sake of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You're trying to bring other people into that assembly. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. I, mean, I, I didn't answer when we were asking you know, who is the Great Commission to. I kind of left that. But I mean, flowing right out of that, yeah. my answer would have been it, it's actually the church. And we, it, the Western mindset, we very quickly want to say if you're saying the church, you're meaning the individual components yeah. of the church. No, 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 no. The church. People. And then it filters into the people, but it's always this bigger event right. above the individual. It's the church who is assigned the Great Commission. And therefore, it's the church who's going to receive all of those who are received by the Great Commission, all those who are you know, receiving Christ through that. Right. Yeah. Jamie, do you want to add, brother? I, I do. Um, we yeah. think of discipleship and, and, and how we are to, again, make disciples and make disciples. Really, when we think of discipleship, and this isn't original with me. Um, I can't remember the book that I read, but really discipleship is directional. Um, we, we tend to say we need to get to this point or, or that point. But when we think, when we just boil it down and you look at Acts chapter 2 and 4 that Brian has alluded to, our job in the local church as pastors, elders, and, and others who lead in the church, our goal is to get people closer to Jesus. Um, that, that's discipleship, is helping our people to follow Jesus in his way. 
to, to get them closer through Bible reading, through prayer, through um, the Lord's table, the, the different graces that we have, and, and to move closer. It, it's um, drawing our people or at least helping our people get closer to Jesus. That's really what discipleship is all about. And we waste so many of our resources on everything but that in the local church when if our people were to learn to treasure Jesus and and the world would see that our greatest treasure is Jesus um, I think it would be a little easier for us to fulfill the Great Commission I think also if there was a more a greater commitment at the, at the eldership or pastoral level to not have a church built around themselves the church was not a personality called around the pastor right the pastor was exalting Jesus, or the group of pastors are exalting Jesus, and the congregation is exalting Jesus. They're centered around Jesus, right? Well, that makes a ton of difference uh, in the health of the church, and then the the way in which the church is going to go about bearing fruit in the Great Commission. Agreed. Speaking of the the personal aspect of sharing the gospel, maybe we'll move to the next yeah, question. Exactly. Uh, I feel like this next question is. One of all thoughts in or at one point or another um, says, when I feel inadequate, or I'm pressed for time, or I'm scared, whatever it may be, how can I grow in sharing the gospel with those around me? Well, I think we just landed on it, um, talking about treasuring Jesus. <laughs> That's a great place to start. Um, I wrote down several things when I was looking over this, this question when it was sent and I I responded by saying some of the first things we could do is pour over the promises of scripture and uh, there's a lot there but I'm not joking like I feel inadequate most moments in my life and I know what this, the truth of scripture says I'm not talking about just evangelism I'm talking about everything like Sin, temptation, uh, weakness. Um, I don't know all the brokenness of the world that I'm living in, the brokenness of the brain that I'm living in, all the different things. But um, one thing that I've found that's helped me in life, but specifically in evangelism, is just pouring over the promises of Scripture. Because if you focus on yourself in isolation from God, there's no hope. And there's no hope for the world around you. So just for example, I've been going through a really, really hard season the last five weeks, and I just decided to memorize Isaiah 41.10. And uh, it says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And. Uh, there's a lot more of those promises in the scripture and that helps you in all of life, but it helps you in, in evangelism because, you know, I don't feel adequate to do that, but I say with apostle Paul, my adequacy is in Jesus. My adequacy is in God. And, um, that's just the beginning place. Like let's take it back. What does that promise say to you? The one that I quoted in Isaiah 41. Well, it is part of the promise in Matthew 28 at the end because you get this great commission given to you. And we didn't get onto it probably because I was talking too much, but 
part of that question earlier on was, why is the Great Commission great? Part of that is because it's from God. The scope is so great. Like, we're taking a message, um, and we need to see people transform from the heart. And we can't do that. And then God says at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, He says, For I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. As you go make disciples. That's the context of it. It's the same thing Isaiah 41 is saying. It's saying, you're not going to do this by yourself. We know that we're going in the power of the Spirit, but we remind ourselves that daily because we forget. And we know we don't do it on our own. We get His strength. We get His help. He's going to uphold us by His righteous right hand even when we're sharing the gospel. So there's so many other things we could memorize. Like, I love to think about the love of God. First John says that love casts out all fear. Perfect love. That's not your perfect love for Jesus. That's actually Jesus' perfect love for you. So meditating on the fact that Jesus came and died and saved you when you were at your worst, that's when, when, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Christ made you alive. Meditate on that, and that perfect love for you, a perfect failure, that will produce a great confidence moving forward into this scenario. You know, and it won't be, oh, I have to share this or my church is going to think I'm really a failure. Like I keep on getting together with my friend from the office and I've made him a meal and we've talked a lot about life and I've mentioned Jesus a couple of times, but I've never shared the gospel. I'm just such a failure. When you start fixing your mind that the king of glory came and he ransomed you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and he loved you before you were lovely or lovable, then you're gonna actually fuel your soul. And when you fuel your soul like that, you're gonna wanna share. And that's what Ephesians 2 talks about. Um, But that's also what 1 Peter talks about. But you were chosen, right? You're a royal priesthood. You're a people of his own possession. You once didn't have mercy, now you've gotten mercy and salvation. You weren't, once weren't his people, now you're a people. And then they say, well, here's the purpose now. Go and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. And after you meditate on that first part for a while, you're like, yes, I've got something to say. <laughs> I do want to talk about Jesus now. Yeah. And I'm, I don't feel myself so shy <coughs> anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so David would be... Um affectionate route. I'm going to go with the uh, stakes route. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so I'm just going to read the passage to us. This is Paul. And I just think it's good for us. So as you are uh, allowing yourself to sort of marinate in the love of Christ and the promises of God in Scripture, okay, you can also let this sit with you as well. The stakes. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. But, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's right. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach 
the good news. Amen. So I think it's good for us while we are uh, sort of saturating our hearts or having our hearts saturated in the love of Christ, the great saving love of Christ for us, it's also good to feel. Like, if we don't go, well, we're not allowed by Scripture to sort of say, someone else will go. Someone else will do it. Okay? It's incumbent upon us because of the Great Commission, because of what Christ has done for you and made you, that we feel the stakes. If we don't go, if we don't preach the gospel, if we don't send each other and others all over the world and here in Clemson, if we don't do that, people are not going to hear the gospel and they cannot then repent of their sins and believe in Christ. Right. So we've got to feel that as well, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you, brothers. Um, moving on to question eight, as we just have a couple more to wrap up with. This question says, what does it mean and what might it look like for local churches to be together for the gospel. In other words, to have active cooperation in the Great Commission. It looks like this. Yeah, something like this. That's what I was thinking. As an example. As an example. Yeah. <laughs> it means not, not being in competition with one another. Yes. We're, yeah. we're not like, I, I'm not going to make Christ more glorified by poaching um, other believers from other churches and making that my mission. It's not about a competition in an area for, for my membership is right. bigger than your membership. It's simply make disciples, baptizing them. It's, it's, yeah. it's not that. One well, kingdom. One kingdom. Yeah. Well, it's caring, it's caring for other local churches mm-hmm. other than your own. Yeah. Looks like praying for them sometimes in pastoral mm-hmm. prayers. Yeah. Well, the cool thing about that prayer comment it's interesting in Acts chapter 4 I believe that they were being persecuted for their faith the early church and they went to pray and they didn't ask for the persecution to be lifted they asked for boldness and and it came and so I was just thinking and those are the types of things we pray for one another you know we pray that God might grant us boldness um, not just in our own church, but in all the, the churches that are gathered in his name. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, too, is, again, we, we mentioned that the, the local church is central to the Great Commission. Again, we should be laboring side by side uh, as churches, uh, not just as members of a single church, but as sister churches. We should be laboring uh, to help each other because, because it, is, it is, so 150 years ago, 200 years ago, you'd have like one church in town. If you didn't like something in the church, you couldn't just go to the next church. Okay, that wasn't the church. Well, now you have 17 churches just in Central. 17. Okay, so if you don't like something, you're just like, peace out, dude. And you just go down the street. And whoever's at that church, typically, is just kind of like, sweet, another person. And there's, there's very little communication happening between sister churches about the people that they're bringing in to their congregations. And a lot of times, I mean, they're, they're unhealthy sheep. They're, they're sheep who, who need attention. Uh, sometimes in, in 
uh, regrettable cases, they might be wolves in sheep's clothing. And you, you've begun to preach the gospel in the church, the church is getting healthy, the spiritual temperature is rising in the church, and it's too hot. It's too hot for them, so they have to go somewhere else. So I think cooperation can and will often, day to day, critically, look like churches collaborating to ensure that their membership is healthy mm-hmm. and solid, that it's a, it's a body of believers. So I think at the very basic, fundamental level, that is that is essential to our cooperation and to being together for the gospel. Because the church, as we've been hearing here in Galatians, the church has been called to safeguard and preserve the truth of the gospel. It's not the apostles, it's not pastors, it's not missionaries only. It's the members of a church. They are called to safeguard the gospel. How is that going to happen if the members of the church are unregenerate, if they don't know the gospel, if they're unhealthy, if they don't know the word of God, so on and so forth. And so we just have to be very, very um, forthright, uh, clear, consistent uh, in our laboring, not just as a single local church, but as a, an association of local churches, sister churches in an area uh, that the folks that are coming into our churches really are believers. And, and I think we might have dropped the ball a little bit there. Um, I, I don't know yeah. how many of y'all are familiar with the, the idea of church letters. Like when somebody comes forward to join a church by promise of a letter, um, that doesn't mean that there's a letter in the trunk of First Baptist Church of Norris that's got your name on it. And when somebody wants to join this church, we send it. What that is supposed to be is that pastor of that church or or whomever says, so-and-so is a believer in good standing with the church. Right under discipline. Right, they're not under discipline, but that never happens. And it should happen before the sister church receives them into their membership. That's right. But it doesn't happen like that. So... But I think that's uh, that's a huge issue when it comes to uh, gospel cooperation. Well, I know that you guys said at the beginning that this is an example of that. And I was just going to come in the mail because I think you guys do it really well to get other churches uh, together, even if it's just for a panel uh, or something like that. That's really uh, encouraged me over the years to see. And uh, I'm I'm blessed because I, I feel like that shows that you have a bigger... Um, focused on just yourself that you're, you're focused on the, the greater kingdom even I know you guys practice praying for other churches on your Sunday morning uh, worship services and that's just really uh, encouraging as well um, so that's another answer about how to make sure we're together for the gospel in this uh, great commission work alright thank you brothers uh, our last question here for tonight what is our great hope and doing what we can to advance the Great Commission. What consolation and motivation comes from the abiding promise of Jesus? Uh, David already, David already clobbered this one. I mean, it, it ultimately is that he is oh, with sorry, us. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm just saying he overwhelmingly answered it. And Jesus is with us until the That's end. Right. We, we don't have any, he, and he has all authority, so yeah. what do we have to fear? Yeah. What do we have that can you know make us feel opposed? Yeah. Ultimately? 
Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I love Clobberant. Uh, <laughs> uh, Matthew 10, 28 has always been really encouraging. I know that people can read that the wrong way or with the wrong emphasis, but I think Jesus says something like, uh, why, why would you be afraid of those that can only kill the body? And you're like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> and then you read the, the rest of it and he said, you know, why not fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell? And then the believer goes, he gave me grace. He didn't cast my body or my soul into hell and he's not going to. And uh, yeah, that's part of the victory. And then like open it up to Revelation 21 and like see every, every uh, tongue and tribe proclaiming the excellencies of, of Jesus, the lamb that was slain, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy are you. Yeah. Like look at that and see his victory and just stare it in the face and bask in it, that you can die, that you can be a martyr under the, under the altar, a soul under the altar that's been martyred for God, but know that he won, and because he wins, your victory's found in him, and uh, that'll inspire you. And I say that, and I'm not like this mission evangelistic machine or anything like that, and I, I'm very honest with you, like I really struggle. I'm, I'm, I'm going to India, Lord willing, on Friday for the first time, and I've been petrified about that. And you're like, that sounds so silly. And I have been. Um, but like, I'm trying to, with God's help, fix my eyes on that vision of the risen Lord, the reigning Savior for all of eternity, with every tribe and tongue gathered around him, proclaiming his excellency, his worthiness, his blood ransomed the people yeah. and from every tribe. Yeah. And that I'm just looking for that to inspire my faith and get me, get me on the plane, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so I, um, just in reading through Matthew, uh, in Matthew 17, 17, there's this really uh, interesting back and forth where Jesus uh, has just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's coming down. Some of his disciples have tried to cast out this demon from uh, this child. They can't do it. And uh, he's like, this is where he says, you know, this, this work can only be cast out by prayer, right? But he says this in 17, speaking to the disciples. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to be to, to bear with you? And then he says, bring you here to me, right? So how long? How long, how long am I supposed to do this? It's really interesting because what he's talking about is I'm going to the cross. I'm, I'm, there's a sense in which I'm not going to be here with you always. And you need to, you need to hurry up and learn to be dependent right. children, dependent disciples, prayerful people, okay? But then when you get to the end of Matthew's gospel and you get to the Great Commission, what does he say? So Matthew 17, 17 is, how long am I going to be with you? Well, at the end of the Great Commission, he goes, I am with you always to the end of the age, right? Well, why does he say it like that there? Well, because having been crucified, He's now been raised from the dead. Yes. Right? And he's been he's going to ascend. And as he ascends, he's going to pour out the Spirit. And the Spirit of Christ is going to indwell us. Yes. And so he is with us in a much more intimate and mighty way than ever before. And uh, it's going to be all the way to the end. And so one of the things that what really is undergirding the Great Commission 
is the fact that Jesus is resurrected. Yeah. And so you go to 1 Corinthians 15, which is a great chapter about the resurrection of Jesus. And what does he say there in 1 Corinthians 15? I believe it's verse 57, somewhere like that. It basically says, your labors are not in vain. Right. Why? Yeah, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, the risen Lord, your labors are not in vain. Amen. Because the resurrection is true. That's right. Yeah. And he's the beginning of it. Yeah, that's right. And we're the we're we're coming along in the train. Yeah. That's right. So the hope, the motivation is that we're just instruments in the Redeemer's hand. A resurrected Redeemer. Jesus. Like the book of Acts, it's not about just Peter and Paul, these dudes taking the gospel over to the world. It's just the acts of Christ through Mm -hmm. his people by his spirit. That's what it is. It is the continued work of Jesus. He's the one who is fulfilling the Great Commission through us. Yeah. Amen. Go ahead. And it's interesting to note, too, that Matthew ends the same way it began is in Matthew chapter one. Joseph is told about the coming of Jesus. Uh, He should be called Jesus for he will uh, save my people from their sins. And then it quotes, um, I guess it's Isaiah there. Um, He he quotes, uh, they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And, And so in Matthew 28, when Jesus is closing out the great commission, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And, um, that comforts me in knowing that Jesus is with me when I preach, with me when I'm leading people, um, with you when you're sharing the gospel. But another great thing about the presence of Christ in us while we're fulfilling the Great Commission is it lets me know that the power's not from me. The power's from Him. And for somebody that's been on a long theological journey and is still on a long theological journey, um, I have to rest in the sovereignty of God and salvation and knowing that whoever the Father gives to the Son, um, he will be saved or right. she will be saved. Right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, okay. We have a few minutes. So, so if you have uh, any questions that you would like to ask us, we do have a few minutes that we can field questions and I'll try to give very slight answers to them. Which means I will not talk. I'm not gonna talk then. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's down to YouTube. That's right. <clears throat> yes, sir. So, I think you gave a picture of like the missionaries and the local churches, like waves, like you send them out, they yeah. come back in, and there's like a whole integrated process with the local church so is there any like danger or issues with like members of church sort of circumventing that system to support missionaries like, directly outside the local church? This is uh, we did want to repeat the question just so oh my favorite. Do you need to Yeah, is that is there danger in circumventing that local church process? Um in sending out missionaries. Yeah, in sending out missionaries. There absolutely can be. Um, but, I mean, the church taking its responsibility to vet missionaries um, and not to outsource that to somebody else is a huge danger. Um, it should be the church who knows 
a Christian's walk. And therefore, uh, there, there really is no other body that can look at them and go, yeah, we, we've seen how they are living. We see that they are actively engaged as a disciple now. And those are the kind of people you send. You don't want to send off as a missionary somebody who's not ready, who's not actually walking with Christ, who isn't actually evangelizing at home. Um, and so if you're outsourcing that to somebody who is basically going to give a questionnaire or, you know, something else, they're not even going to, to go to their pastors and go, you know, has this been, this person been, you know, a good follower? Have they been serving well? Have they been sharing the gospel? Are they divisive? You know, if they don't come back to the church and ask those things, it can be very dangerous. You're going to send people out into the field. And what they're going to do is not reproduce the church, not a healthy church. They're going to reproduce the faith that they know, um, which if that only looks like you know, personal or if that doesn't even look like a Christian, if that doesn't even look like Christ, it can be very dangerous. What was the, uh, the, the, the hairs? Who did they go through to Cameroon? World team? Mm-hmm. So, so the hairs, I mean, they have a... They have a home church here, but like they, so we support like as as individuals and as a church, we try to support Dave and Stacey here, their translation work uh, in Cameroon, but they're not members of this local church, right? And they've gone through World Team, I think is what it is, and um, but they're still going to, so they're getting regular, like we saw this past Sunday, right? They're giving a video, they're letting us know what's going on. They're in pretty regular uh, communication with. Myself and, and Jenny just letting us know what's going on. Uh, they're going to have a home church here, but they also have then another. They have a church there as well. I think he had mentioned uh, his pastor there, and so they've submitted themselves. Even though they've gone through a different organization, they've submitted themselves both uh, at home and abroad to the authority of the local church. Yeah. But there's also dangers in just how we fund missionaries. Now, I mean, this is a good question. Time we're in with with you know kind of mission movements uh, has you know they've been able to garner a lot of money and resources to support sending missionaries um, but that's also often making for missionaries having to do a lot of the work themselves having to you know basically give results to numerous churches who you know some of them you know are more aware or knowledgeable about what they should be looking for but a lot of them are like Numbers, numbers, numbers. I don't see any. I don't see you know baptisms. How many baptisms did you have this year? Um, and so this division of where you know a, a missionary is really being supported by a large number can itself be dangerous. It's not wrong, but when you can, as a church, fund a missionary to say we're sending you, it takes a lot of burden off of that missionary. And so there's just other. I mean, there, there's just ways where. The health of a sending church is very important to those missionaries on the ground. Mm-hmm. You got two and a half minutes. Is there any other uh, questions? Sorry, you good? Two and a half minutes. Any other questions out there? Yes, ma'am. Okay, follow up question to Joe's question. So, given the fact that a lot of us come from smaller churches, I can't speak to David. But we're in a smaller church, so obviously we don't have the capacity. David pastors of mega church, it's like fifteen thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> given that, given that we don't have the resources at this time to fully fund and send out a missionary long term, what would your top three for like when we're talking about supporting other missionaries that obviously our church can't vet every single missionary that we might be interested in supporting? 
reporting? What were your three or four like either questions that you asked them or how do we approach um, being good stewards of what God, the resources God has given us? And in funding missionaries, when our local church hasn't actually sent out a specific missionary. Mm. I mean, one of, I mean, not to harp or kind of beat on a, a, a this would be Dan, I'm sorry, just to clarify the question, is it, this would be people who are not members of our local church? Right. Okay. So, like, for example, I have friends, I have a lot of friends who have, yeah. from our previous church who have gone yeah. into missions, they've gone through different organizations, but also under the blessing of their sending, you know, of their local church or whatever. So I know that personally, but, you know, some other friend, friend's friend comes and says, oh, well, my friend's going, you know, whatever, what are the, like things we should be asking right. to say, is this someone that is going under the blessing of a local church, even though like right. they have an organization, so it can be kind of like murky. Right. Is it a church? Is it an organization? What questions would you ask, David? Because when we, we so if you don't know, most of you I think probably do know, but we planted a church just outside of Boston in 2012, and David's church, the church that he's at currently, has been at for 11 Years November, yeah. We they y'all supported us. Y'all supported our church plan. So, what would you want to know from someone like me uh, who's going to maybe plant a church, whether it's in Boston or India or wherever? I said I would respond. <laughs> you can do it. Okay, thanks. I just want to make sure I had your blessing. Okay. Um, <laughs> so. At the time. Thirty seconds. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, some of the stuff that George already mentioned, George mentioned it. Like I, the reason why it was so easy for me, it was a no brainer is because I knew you since you were 13 right. and I know your life. I know your doctrine. Um, I know your love for the Lord. I know your faithfulness. And so those things sometimes cannot be filled out on a questionnaire and that makes it challenging. So that's why it's so helpful. And I think part of the healthy process of sending them out from a local church, if you can, if you have that opportunity is because you get to see life on life for years and you get to to see what they are doing and what they're not doing and what is said like you know if they're not doing it here i mean it's been said a thousand times about missionaries if they're not doing it here whatever it is like hospitality evangelism etc making disciples they're not, they're not going to do it there and that's you can't see that on the application yeah you can ask questions so it's a tricky question to, to answer I could see that with you guys, so I'd ask all the questions. You know, there there needs to be a doctrinal uh, application. You know, there needs to be something where they can fill out theology and philosophy, philosophy of ministry, and also a questionnaire towards their spouse. Like each spouse needs to probably yeah. fill out a questionnaire on their spouses, and we can go on and on and on. Like asking the hard questions about addiction, asking the hard questions about uh, sharing your go the gospel. Are you sharing consistently? But not to turn it into like, you got to reach this bar before you can go, but just so you can shepherd them or know who your church should support. So we've had the privilege to support missionaries over the years since yeah. I've been at, at Connection for the last 11 years. And we've had a, a great blessing with several of them to, to go now long, long term with them, which for us is like eight years. And you get to learn a lot and you get to read a lot of newsletters and you get to go on the ground, boots on the ground with them. And I think, um, you know, that's an ideal situation. So I didn't really answer completely, but 
you, you got it. Do you have any other questions? Uh, we'll try to stick around uh, for a little while to, to answer anything else you have. We'll have Jonathan actually close us by reading Matthew 28, 16 through 20 once more, and we'll be done. Sounds good. Um, yeah, let's read one more time so we have it on our hearts and our minds. Uh, continuing this week, verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So, thank you all, brothers. Thank you, everyone, for coming.